Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, and verses 31 through to 43. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, and I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go and visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. This is the word of the Lord. We'll dismiss the kids now to kids' church and preschool. There's no uh, high school class. Uh, You can can see even from the scripture reading, we're in a slightly different order this morning, and uh, I'm going to do the sermon in, in two parts So you'll get the first part in just a few minutes from now. But uh, first, I want to call Steffi Berge up to give us an update on what she's doing in the summer in Ladakh and uh, how you might be involved. Steffi. summer, June 28th to July 17th, I'm going on a mission trip to Ladakh, India, where I will be helping with the Himalayan Life summer camp for the Nepalese migrant worker children. I am totally excited to go. For the first time ever, we are going to do a musical with lots of songs, skits, dances, and a grand performance at the end of the week. The theme of the musical will be Zacchaeus. We are expecting 80 to 100 children for the camp. My mom is one of the leaders. Sadly, my dad can't go because he needs to head back to Nepal to continue his work coordinating earthquake relief. Many of the Nepalese children in Ladakh, too, have lost relatives in the earthquake. Please pray for me as I'm going to be a group leader. I really hope I can be a blessings to the girls and the other kids at the hostel. The airfare to Ladakh is quite expensive. It's $1,800. I have done some babysitting and saved up, but still need to raise almost $1,000. So you can buy some some of the Himalayan salt I filled into nice little jars. 
It's by donation, pay as much or as little as you want. Or you can sponsor me with a donation and even get a tax receipt. Thank you very much. Well done. That was really good. Uh, clear, concise, <laughs> and now me. Um, we've, we've taken up this series, Essential Activities or Essential Practices in the Christian Faith. And uh, over this week and next week, I want to look at one that I've called Being with the People You're With. The other way that you could title it would be Encountering Others. So what we're saying is you can't live the Christian faith in isolation. You live the Christian faith in relationship with other people. And not only Christians, by the way, but uh, in, in relation to whoever it is that you are encountering in your daily life. If I were to ask you what your struggles are, what the struggles that you're facing right now, the things that you would like or need solved in your life, the things that you may have a lack of peace over, and you would like to have peace over those things, you could name, uh, in a room like this, we could name a number of them. Some of them might have to do with relatives, with children, concern for family, right? Uh, I know many of them. Being pastor here, I get to converse with some of you over these things and pray with you and for you. Some of you would name struggles of not having enough or feeling relatively insecure in terms of financial situation or whatever it might be. Uh, the struggles that maybe you don't name as much might be struggles of status or power, feeling like you don't have a place in the world or in this culture or don't have the recognition that other people may have. Uh, I don't seek to downplay any of those struggles, and very often you come to me and speak to me about those, and I want that to keep happening because those are the, in those things you face the, the reality of your daily life. However, I want to outline over this this week, just in, in the few minutes that I'll take this morning, and Daniel will come up later to uh, share on Nepal, I want to outline in the few minutes this morning and then more extensively next week what is actually your central struggle as a Christian. So I can maybe name some of them, you know, the ones that I've just mentioned, and they'd be different for different ones of you. But I'm confident that I can say, I'm not diminishing those struggles, but I want to tell you what the central struggle is for the Christian, and it's this. The hardest spiritual work we have is, in fact, the call on our lives to love God and to love neighbor as self. That's the central struggle of each of our lives. Again, not to diminish those things that you are actually thinking about every day. I wish this would work out. I wish this was different. And as I use the word struggle... I don't mean that it always has to be some kind of negative battle, like, oh no, I have to love my neighbor. I mean, this is the call for the work of your life. Love God with your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the prophets, all the direction of God is summed up in this. Now, the thing is that most of you don't think of that as your primary struggle. You think of all these other things. So if you're facing health difficulties, that's your struggle. Well, that's a struggle. But the struggle at that point, the real Christian one would be, how are you going to love God and love neighbor as you're facing those health difficulties? 
See how different that is? And we get this text today that's going to dive into this. The mistake that I make often, and I think you make this same mistake, is that you think your struggles are mostly to do with how to live. So you have this idea of what a good life might be. And some of you have experienced that good life and then faced some threats to it later on. Or simply something like aging can, can offer that. You know, for a while there may have been a plateau in your life where you think, okay, things are relatively good. And then you start to face the difficulties of aging and all of a sudden some of those certainties are threatened. So you think that your struggles are struggles of life. But what happens is, as you begin to understand that the primary Christian call is to love God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you realize, and again, I don't mean this in some kind of morbid way, it's actually life-giving when you understand it, your struggle is not, your central Christian struggle is not to live at all, it's how to die. Now, I can give you a nice, simple example. You might have this, you, you will have had, you will have faced this struggle already today. Because if you were in the foyer for any length of time, you might have been involved in five or six different conversations. And in one of those conversations, there was probably the struggle of, how am I going to lose my self-interest right now in this conversation? I have to let go of myself. I have to be present for the other. The central struggles in the Christian life have often more to do with how to die than how to live. I need to figure out each day what the call of losing my self-interest is uh, in a number of different occasions throughout that day. This is where we get to that uh, Christian practice of being with the people that you're with or encountering others. And Matthew 25 offers a very stark, uh, demanding picture of what it might mean to encounter others But ultimately, when you see this text, and Jesus makes it pretty explicit, uh, when you see this text, it's not only encountering others, it is that when you were truly able to encounter others and be present for them, in that, what happened? You actually encountered Christ. It's, It's a remarkable statement. Matthew chapter 25, the scene is a scene of contrast because you have, and when Anne read it, the word glory was, I don't know, three or four times, depending on the version you're reading. In the first couple of verses of this reading, the word glory appears at least a few times. And we're told that this is the final judgment. I mean, this is apocalyptic in a sense, in its scope. So it's the end of all things. When all things come to an end, Jesus will be there. He will be the judge. The word judgment is there. There's a throne there. I mean, this is a heavenly, apocalyptic-type picture. That's one way of seeing it. The contrast is that it's terribly, terribly earthy and small. The judgment seems to be over the smallest things. Did you give a cup of water? Did you visit the prisoner? So you have this grand apocalyptic scene, but then the standard seems to be something not of great, huge spiritual achievement, but simply, were you present for the people in your world and in your life? Glory. There's a gathering. We're told that all nations are there. 
And then we're told that Jesus separates person from person as if he were separating the sheep from the goats, the goats from the sheep. These practices that we've considered so far, we've considered three of them. Wake up. We looked at Jacob's story, remember? I thought this was a God-forsaken place. I realize now as I've awoken that this is the very house of God. You guys are all trying to get somewhere else in your life, many of us, thinking about the next place. If only this church were different. We need to get to that next place. If only my life were different. I need to get to that next place. The Jacob story reminds us, open your eyes to God's presence where you are. So wake up. Secondly, pay attention. We looked at Moses in the burning bush. And when you begin to understand God's presence in your life, there is that truth that every bush becomes a burning bush. Moses, we were told, had a willingness to turn aside from the tasks of his ordinary life. And in doing so, he encountered the presence of the living God. Once Moses paid attention, God spoke to him and gave him this mission of delivering the people or being God's um, instrument of deliverance. And then last week we looked at get lost, uh, realizing that it is in those forsaken places in our lives that we often learn some of the deepest truths of faith. We see in, the, in those broken places, in, in what we would call forsaken places, places that we would never choose. So this would be sickness, sorrow, insecurity, real threat, where if someone comes up to you and says, don't worry, it's going to be okay, you know they're only saying that to try to make things feel better because nobody knows if it's going to be okay. Those places. When you're in those places, you can, you can encounter two things about God. One is God's holiness because you are no longer in control and you see that God is other than you and that your, uh, whether you live or die is no threat to God. Those are terrible places to be, but you encounter God's holiness. But also in encountering God's holiness, which is often only for some, holiness means the other, that God is distant from us or separate from us. We're unlike God. He's holy. We're not. But in terms of holiness, as we understand it as Christians, two things happen. I talked to you about the car accident that I had once, and I felt this. That you, you encounter the holiness of God, that you are so small and you could cease to exist and nothing really would change. But that that holiness is never only distant. In fact, as you understand the holiness, you're confronted with the intimate compassion of God who says, I am with you. I won't forsake you. But God, will I live or die? Here's the answer. I'm with you. And today we talk about, and next week we speak about encountering others. As Jesus presents it, how I saw and treated others is in in some degree how I saw or failed to see Jesus and treat Jesus. Both groups of people, the ones who served those in need and the ones who didn't, say, when did we see you? You weren't in prison. And Jesus says to them, when you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. Jesus takes the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. When did we see you in any of these things? The acts are so simple. 
Six acts of mercy. John Chrysostom, who I quoted last week, it's a beautiful name, John Chrysostom. It means golden mouth. He was a good preacher in the fourth century. We're still quoting him today. He says, note what wasn't there. It doesn't say, I was sick and you healed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a cup of water. It doesn't even say, I was a prisoner and you set me free. I was a prisoner and you visited me. These are acts that every single one of us in this room can do. And they're the acts of judgment. It's a reminder to me as well because it doesn't say, I came to church and you preached to me. Love thy neighbor. Be with the people you're with. And when you see people as people, you begin to encounter Christ. I want to be careful with the next statement, or when I say that, I'm saying you should be careful with this, but I think it's worth stating. One of the commentaries I read on this pointed something out that was very interesting to me. This is the final judgment, but in this, in this scene of the final judgment, and I understand and accept, unless you accept the Lord Jesus Christ, you can't be saved, unless I trust in him, right? There's no other name by which to be saved. But in this judgment, look at what the judgment is over. It is not whether I received Christ into my heart in this judgment. It's whether I was able to receive Christ in other people. Could I see? It wasn't just my belief in this judgment. You could believe in Jesus Christ well and fine and still be among the goats. That's kind of the point. But if you could see the presence of Jesus Christ in the world other than in you, including with others, well, that's where the judgment is in this scene. So that's all I'll give for this week. Next week we'll outline what prevents us from being able to see the other in this way and to be truly present. Uh, And I think there's some fairly contemporary examples of what um, prevents us from doing this. For now, the promise of this is that you have some homework. I hope you come back next week, or that most of you can. And the way that we've done this this week and next week allows you to kind of um, stew over this a little bit. What might this mean? What might this not mean? And then next week we'll look at what prevents us from truly being present for someone else in this way that we're called to in this text. Just give you one last line on that as, as, as uh, I close and then pray, and then we'll take the offering after I pray, and then we'll continue with, with our service. The greatest impediment to spiritual growth in your life, my life too, by the way, The greatest impediment to spiritual growth in any of our lives is being self-absorbed. When did we see you naked? When did we see you a prisoner? When did we see you in need? As you've done it unto the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. May we have ears to hear. Let's pray, and I'll pray for the offering as well. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your words to us, your call in our lives. 
Lord Jesus, you present in this scene such a simple picture. I want more fire or something. I want more thunderclaps and lightning bolts at the final judgment. Not sheep and goats and cups of water. Lord Jesus, forgive us for how we fail in these ways and help us to see what the true call and the true struggle in our lives is. And help us to see that as we are willing to engage in that struggle, it is a struggle unto life, not death. We don't need to fear that I could seek to love my neighbor when I'm well, that I could seek to love my neighbor when I'm sick, that it isn't in the end about me. Give me, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for the needs of our congregation as we gather. We pray for Roz Judge in hospital. We pray for her healing and her continued care after this hospital stay, that you would guide and direct and bless her family and decisions. I pray for um, Yvonne Orr, who has not been well and has not been able to go to school. Is I know it's fine, Lord, and she's going to get better, but, but I know that... Uh, uh, for, for somebody her age, it's, it's difficult to miss things at this time. And so we pray for her quick recovery and healing from this virus. We thank you for the call among us as a people to be together. We ask that you would forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that we would have ears to hear. And Heavenly Father, that you would place upon our hearts and minds an awareness of the privilege that it is to gather together and to be together and share this faith. Pray a blessing on uh, Daniel's presentation. We thank you for uh, the Berge family and the tremendous cost that that, uh, they face in in giving so much. We thank you for Steffi uh, sharing with us this morning and we pray a blessing on her work. And we just pray for her safety. We pray, Heavenly Father, for um, for her encounter with you in this trip as she encounters others. Bless that work, we would ask. And now we pray for this offering, that you would use it for your namesake, for your glory, that we would know of your love and others would know of your love through the work of this church and others. Bless this offering, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, The song that I'm going to be doing is called Inland. It's by uh, Jars of Clay. And... kind of felt I wanted to give a little bit of backstory if you don't know where it's talking about. It's a little confusing. Um, It's a story of Odysseus um, from Homer's Odyssey. Um, And he was a sailor that had been held captive for seven years. And when he returned home, he was advised to leave his ship, to leave the sea and carry his oar inland. And he needed to carry it until people no longer recognized what it was and they mistook it for a winnowing fan. And it was about learning that only when he could let go of the things that he thought defined him, that he could actually know what he truly was, what his true identity was. And that it wasn't about just himself, but it was about being with other people. Um, So yeah, I think that Al's got lyrics for this as well. But as Todd would say, it's not a congregational song, so he would probably tell you to not sing along. There are no 
streets to walk on, no maps you can rely on, faith and guts to guide you, wander till you find you, only raw desire, no match to give you fire, you'll have to trust your heart. You don't believe in oceans, you, you are a sailor, burned your ship and walked on, far you keep turning inland when no man is an island. It's where you're supposed to be. Oh, 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 oh. oh, oh, oh. you keep Daniel Berge up now to give us a presentation on Nepal's recent visit there, uh, particularly after the earthquake. Let me pray for you. So, Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us, and we thank you for those who share this faith around the world. And uh, I'm sure Daniel being here now 
that his heart in many ways is, is still there, seeing such suffering and, and such um, need. Lord, we, we uh, can think of the things in our lives that, that, that we consider to be places of weakness or suffering. And we don't want to just play a game that, well, oh, well, other people have it worse than us. But, but open our eyes to see um, where true and deep need is in this world. Bless Daniel as he shares with us now and his whole family as they uh, go uh, in different directions in, in just a couple of weeks' time. We pray a blessing in Jesus' name. Good morning, everyone. Well, we promised you that I was going to share with you a little bit about my experience. We'll show you some pictures. Before doing that, um, Todd was just talking about, about loving God and loving neighbor. And I found myself remembering a few years ago, I went through one of those phases. I go through phases when I question uh, even my calling and all. And I was going through one of those phases. I was, in fact, in Ladakh where Steph and Karina are going to go to lead summer camps. Um, And in the back of my mind, a song kept on playing. Like it happens sometimes, it's really annoying. (laughs) As I kept on playing, I think it's by Matt Redman, and the words go something like, uh, and I stand at your gate once more, where my heart and my spirit soars, and now comes the line, um, and I wish I could love you more. Um, And don't we all have that thought on our hearts sometimes? I wish I could love you more, God. What does that mean? And I felt that day, I felt such a strong answer from God. That's a few years ago. Um, Just love these kids, and by loving these kids, you can love me more. We've been doing that. Uh, Not just me, my whole family. I mean, that's that's what our organization, Himalayan Life, really is all about. Uh, Loving the kids the slave kids and the migrant worker kids and the street kids and the very regular community kids. And we do programs for for all of them. And I think we have a really good grasp on the world of street children in Nepal that we've developed over the last few years. And really good programs, too, to help them transition away from from their terrible lives on the streets to to what I would, would think is real life life to the full that, that God wants us and Christ wants us to have. And, and now, seven weeks ago, there was the earthquake in Nepal. And having said what I just said, uh, maybe, maybe you understand that we're not a relief organization at all. We have no experience. We're doing, we're doing work with street kids and slave kids and abandoned kids and homes and schools. We're really good at that. But relief work? No clue. So I had two days between the earthquake and my departure to Nepal. I was anyway scheduled to travel to Nepal. And I had two days to, to get my mind, wrap my mind around that. And obviously that thought was very prevalent. Uh, well, we're not really a relief organization. What are we going to do? Um, 
we were clueless. So I wrote emails. I wrote to to the Canadian head of Save the Children. I wrote to the I wrote to the head of World Vision. I wrote to the head of this and that organization that I knew they were going to do big time relief. They have the resources, they have the knowledge. They're going to be there. And I said, well, this is who we are. Um, we're not a relief organization, but I have people on the ground. Um, we have. We have something like 50 people on the ground, and we have lots of relationships. I understand Nepal. Can we help? I didn't get any answers. <laughs> and I think, I think that's good that I didn't get any answers. Maybe God stopped some emails. <laughs> um, and then I, I've, I, I wrote to my former mission director, under whom Karina and I uh, had worked in Nepal for years. And I wrote to him and said, uh, Fred, he's in Switzerland. Freddy, um, what, what's, what's your advice here? We need, some, we need some advice. And guess what? He didn't answer. <laughs> he answered a few days later. And his answer was something like, well, Daniel, actually, you have much more experience than I. Um, and I realized we need to grow up like really fast um, because that's the situation we need to we need to find our own pair of shoes to walk in in this situation and I'm I'm very thankful that um, in all of this we've really really I have personally and we as an organization as a family we've experienced the presence of the great shepherd uh, of the wonderful counselor to help with advice uh, with wisdom, beyond wisdom, and, and with ways to tackle this whole new thing. Um, and, and let me just share with you a few stories about that, and maybe even my... Can we flip back to the very first picture? Can you do that for me, rather than me flip? Oh, okay, you need to do it that way, too. It's about 20 pictures back. Um, never mind. So... Um, a few days after I had arrived in Nepal, I shared with you last week, I first had to see that we, as an organization, all our staff are actually fine, that, that we're okay, that we, that we wake up from, the, from what I call the post-quake paralysis, that we can continue to do the work that we anyway do, um, our programs with the street kids, slave kids, abandoned kids, and so on, because we can't just drop everything now and just do relief work. That took a few days. And after those few days, the whole time, there was a prayer on my heart and a question, so God, what will it mean for us to do relief work, to join the relief effort? What would it be? And it became really quickly clear that uh, two things. One, I'm not getting too much advice from, from the relief organizations, as I said before. I need some other sources of inspiration, A. And B, we need to focus on one place. For inspiration, I really, I, I turned to an old friend. Um, mentioned that last week. I turned to Nehemiah. Um, he's, a, he's a bit of a hero of mine, hey? hero of the faith. And I found some really, really great inspiration there. And I just, bef before I go through the pictures, um, four little points there. When Nehemiah heard about the predicament that his countrymen are in, in Jerusalem, um, I find it remarkable how he responded. Uh, first of all, his compassion, um, how he took it to heart. 
and well I'm an engineer so I turn most things into formulas in my head I see a formula there a faith formula and the formula is um, compassion equals pity plus action I see that in Nehemiah he, he really has pity on the people in Jerusalem but he's willing to throw action on top of it and I felt that's what we need to do um, being being pained in our heart about the earthquake situation is not enough. We need to take action. Secondly, um, there's another formula in Nehemiah that I see pop up time and again. Nehemiah, it, it's, it's one of those few books in Scripture which is written in the first person uh, singular. It means he is writing about his experience. I did that and I did, I, I did that. Um, and Nehemiah time and again will say, and I was afraid. At times even, and I was very much afraid. And every time he's afraid, every single time he will turn to prayer. And you can see in that book how fear plus prayer equals courage. So I try to practice that. Thirdly, I was really impressed how uh, Nehemiah, um, when he arrives in Jerusalem, uh, he does a strange thing. I actually never understood that until this trip. He does a strange thing. Uh, he goes and explores Jerusalem at night, and he does so alone. Scripture says explicitly, and I went alone. I always wondered, why would he do that alone? It makes no sense. He has, a, he has a whole group of people, and more set of eyes will see more things. What happened to his team playing? Um, I'm spirit here. And um, I think I understand now why. When there's, there's things, let, let me put it that way, there needs to be an oscillation between together and alone, between community and doing things alone. Um, as I was faced, with the earthquake situation and, and with finding a response, how we would do relief. I needed to do some of the exploration and some of the decision-making totally alone. The moment I started to discuss it with people, there were so many concerns, so many different angles to look at, um, that, that we would lose courage. So I, I, had to, I had to force myself to do this alone and come up with a project plan and now we're sort of sticking to it. Um, but I had to do it alone. Otherwise, we probably would not have had the courage to come up with that plan. I'll say more about that. So why don't I take you to, uh, with me in pictures um, on that little exploration trip that one of my coworkers and I did. So that's about 10 days after the earthquake. Um, the purpose of the trip was get away from the city where all our work is, where we were relatively safe actually and unharmed even our, our buildings and structures and, and whatnot. And, and better understand what really had happened to the more remote area uh, in the, the most, more remote areas in Nepal closer to the epicenter of the earthquake. And we had heard that the devastation is, is, is bad but we needed to gain a first hand um, um, impression and understand. So Sonam and I, we, we, um, we decided to go on a five-day trip. We laid out the route. 
on a map um, and, and tried to be very strategic about it. And it started all with a very adventurous trip in, in, this, in this vehicle, in this Jeep. Um, I like adventure, by the way, but that was a bit, a bit too much adventure, even for me. Um, traveling from Kathmandu northeast um, on, on fairly precarious roads brought us first to some more towny areas, and the further we traveled northeast, the worse it got with, with the destruction that the earthquake had caused. Entire towns just in, in complete ruins. And not much help yet there. That's 10, 12 days after the earthquake. Hardly any relief going on yet. Um, lots in Kathmandu and in the more accessible places. But the further we got out from Kathmandu, uh, the least... Uh, the, the less help we, we, we saw that had already arrived. Um, towards the end of the road, uh, seven hours into the Jeep ride, um, we came to this little town uh, by the name of Shermatang, and our plan was to walk from here a bit of a loop, uh, four days or so, because that's, really, that's the end of the roads. Many places in Nepal you can only access by, by foot anyways, not just now, but, but uh, even before the earthquake, not such, not such extensive roads uh, yet. Um, Sonam is one of our staff in Nepal, and in, in the, well, maybe he was already a friend before that trip, but uh, during that trip, he became a very, very dear friend to me. I, I had been familiar with his story before, and I'll share that with you. Um, as, as he and I um, had to enter his very, very difficult story during that exploration trip. Nepal is a beautiful country, uh, and I love Nepal, but it has some very, very dark sides too. Christian missions sometimes has been um, accused of destroying culture. I really think we more redeem culture than, than destroy culture. So here is a dark aspect of Nepalese culture. Um, some of the Tibetan uh, areas in Nepal where Tibetan Buddhism is prevalent, they have scapegoat rituals. So when bad stuff happens in a village or in a community, um, or even regularly once a year, someone is chosen as the scapegoat for the village. And the guilt of the village or whatever is being laid ceremonially on that person. And that person might even be given some money or, or not necessary, but can be given some money, and is then um, chased out of the village, never to return, essentially. When my friend Sonam was 14 years old, his dad had been a heavy drinker. He had squandered away everything that family had. There were 11 children. He's the oldest. So when he was 14 years old, because of the financial predicament the family was in, um, his dad sold Sonam to the village as the scapegoat. And he was married off, 14 years old, he was married off to a 30-year-old um, woman who was mentally um, um, challenged. I don't know what the politically correct way is to say that. She was, she was badly mentally challenged, and they were chased off. Three months later, his wife, I guess, hanged herself. So that was Sonam's experience at 14, and ever since 
he had drifted around India, he had left the country, he had drifted around India, tried to make a living somehow, got into drinking himself, wildlife, until he met his wife, Leela, um, whom Heather, for instance, has met in Ladakh, who is now our, our, um, in charge of our home up there. It's a lovely couple. And so they got, they got sort of married. They had two of their three children, and things got totally out of hand. And, and then somehow Jesus came into the picture. Sounds cheesy, but that's just the truth. She, she found the church, or the church found her. She became a Christian, which is, which is maybe less of a black and white process than, than what it sometimes seems. Um, she gradually became a Christian. And she put Sonam, uh, uh, well, she gave him the choice. She said, well, either you come to church and at least check this out, um, or you're out of this home. We cannot bear it any longer. So he, he went to church and, and had an encounter with God. Um, and and he, he transitioned from being that heavy drinker, that useless husband and father, into, into a wonderful person. Um, he discovered that he had skills. So far, he had only been a hired laborer, a day laborer. He discovered that he had skills, that he's actually, that, that he has engineering skills, that he has brains. So this man has only been to school for two years in his life, but he has self-taught himself to use um, a CAT program on his computer, and he designs houses, and his work crews built those houses in Ladakh. And, and we've been able to win him over as, as a staff for Himalayan life for Nepal. And, and now we're really, he and I are, are spearheading this whole relief project that I'm going to say more about. So here's this man together with me, and we go back to that very area, including the very village where he had been chased away from uh, 15 years ago. The scapegoat returning home, so to speak. Um, well, and it wasn't an easy homecoming because the home is gone, like every other house. That's his parental home. Um, and his parents have, have passed away, so it's Sonam's house. That's also in ruins, like every other house up there. Um, that was an interesting night. Uh, so we had walked about seven hours to get to his village. It was raining all day long, just a drizzle. Um, and we arrived there, Sonam found his house, no surprise that it was broken down, he kind of knew. Um, we, we stayed together with some other villagers um, in, in some makeshift shelter made from tarps and bamboo um, and, and had some food together. Food for five days consisted basically of instant, instant noodles. Um, and as it got dark, there was lightning behind the next mountain range. And we went to sleep in the tent, um, and the thunderstorm came. And it was one of those awesome, I mean, I, I kind of like thunderstorms, but I didn't like it so much that night. It was just one of those three-hour-long storms where you have lightning bolt after thunder after lightning bolt after thunder, and the place shakes because it's in the mountains, right, uh, with, with the thunder. Except that night, actually, we were scared. Uh, we had seen that above the village, there were so many cracks in the ground caused by the, by the earthquake. And so we wondered, with that heavy, heavy rain, um, 
will, will the mountain actually hold or, or what's going to happen? So we were all awake and it lasted until about three o'clock in the morning. And just, just as the storm became less, as it moved um, on to the next valley, um, I was just falling asleep. There was one of the stronger aftershocks. I was in my sleeping bag and it rolled me on my left, it rolled me on my right. And my heart was going about 500 beats per second. <laughs> and, and nothing happened. But it was just, it was just a, an incredible night. And it got me reflecting. And I thought, well, I remembered that story, Elijah on the mountain. You know, you know the story I'm talking about, right? And, and Elijah was, was supposed to encounter God on that mountain. And, and there, was, there was an earthquake too there. And the Bible would say God was not in the earthquake. And there was a storm and a fire. And God wasn't in the storm and not in the wind and not in the fire. And I don't understand that one. Maybe you can help me out later. But I experienced very, very strongly that night. God was in the earthquake. And he was in the storm. And he, he was there the whole time. It was amazing. So actually, there wasn't even much fear. But just, just the question, God, how would you like us to... To help these people, what will it mean for us to do relief work as an organization? Next day, Sonam and I walked from village to village. It was the same picture everywhere. Every single house completely wasted, just completely collapsed. And I began to understand what I had heard from um, one of the medical teams that immediately after the earthquake, they had actually gone to some of these areas to do medical relief work. And they came back very soon because there wasn't much to do. People who had been in their houses were dead. And everyone who was outdoors survived. And there wasn't too many uh, who needed medical treatment. And so on the third day, Sonam and I uh, came to this place here with that white flag. The white flag, by the way, in Nepal is the flag of death. Uh, white is the color of death, not black, uh, in Nepal. So if you want to get married, getting married in white would not be a very good idea in Nepal. Um, every village had the white flag fly somewhere on the hill because in every village people had actually been, been killed by the earthquake. This is the flag above the village of Yangri. I didn't know yet when I took this picture that Yangri was going to be very special village for us. But as we came into the village, same pictures as everywhere else, uh, Yangri um, laid to waste, every single house broken down. Some of the houses, now I'm jumping a little bit in my story. I mean, we, we, we then felt um, that Yangri could actually be a place um, for us to rebuild, to do our relief work. And, but Sonam and I had laid out the route so that from Yangri, we would cross the river in Yangri. There's a big river there. Go to the other side, to the next valley, explore some more, come back through Yangri, and then cross the hill again to where the road is. So we, we checked out Yangri. Uh, we tried to evaluate the situation. And two days later, we came back. And already the first time, we felt this could be a place. And the second time we came, we came back, we knew this is the place. Now, in, in, um, we have a board here in Canada, a Himalayan life board. And we had a meeting last week, 
and I tried to be very uh, convincing there at the board level. One board member is here, I have to be careful. Um, I tried to be very convincing, give really good reasons why Yanger is the right village for us to do our rebuilding work. But really, at the end of the day, I, the only thing I can say is we were led there. We, we were just led there, and, and the Holy Spirit spoke both in Sonam's uh, heart and in my heart. This is the place. Um, I can make up a bunch of reasons too, though. Um, <laughs> So, so once, once it became clear to us, this is the place, I tried to analyze. A little bit of Nehemiah, right? Analyze what, what needs rebuilding, what has happened here. Look at this picture. It shows you something about the force of the earthquake. This, by the way, is the house which is the least damaged in the entire area. Um, all other houses basically have completely collapsed. This house has not collapsed. Only one wall has collapsed. And look at the roof. It, it shows you the, the immense magnitude of the quake, uh, the power there to throw that roof completely into a different location. Now, one of the points that we are trying to help this village with is build better homes, homes that will not turn into death traps um, should the earth shake again. And the earth will probably shake again, sadly. Um, Nepal has always been very earthquake-prone. There's a, there's a major earthquake in Nepal every about 80 years, averagely. But uh, sadly, the, the United States Geological Service, which is probably the best earthquake monitoring and forecasting service in the world, they have come to what they term the definite conclusion that a 7.9 magnitude earthquake has by far not been enough to release the pressure built up um, in those tectonic plates under the Himalayas. So, so we need to be prepared for the future, for earthquakes. So what, what we're trying to do is build better homes, reinforce those, ho those homes, maybe with wooden framing structures, uh, so that in the future um, they might be damaged by an earthquake but will not turn into death traps. We looked at the water supply system. Um, this is one of the public fountains. The water is being uh, channeled into Yanger, into the village. Village, by the way, about 100 houses, about four or 500 people, uh, 500 more likely than 400. Um, though the village comes in clusters. So it's, it's, it's fairly spread out, seven clusters of some clusters, 40 houses, some clusters, uh, 10 houses. Um, and that's one of the public fountains that you find in every cluster. The water is channeled in about, about what, uh, two and a half kilometers or something from, from a spring um, through very steep terrain. And I got a piece of good news here to share. Um, as part of the project, as we formulated it, uh, restoring the drinking water system is actually the first thing that we were intending to do. And Yangri has drinking water back since day before yesterday. So that's, that's a piece of really good news. Frankly speaking, that's the smallest component of the entire project, um, the most doable, but we felt it's very important for them to have drinking water, A, and B, um, we, we need to complete something because we all derive courage out of that. Um, because really, at times it's discouraging. To, to look at devastation everywhere, everywhere, your heart sinks. So, so we, 
Yeah, let me continue with the devastation here. Uh, that would be one of the channels that, that's been repaired meanwhile. Um, there's a bridge leading to the village. Uh, it's a suspension bridge, 350 feet long, about 50 feet, 60 feet um, um, over, over the, the river. And we've crossed that bridge several times. But here's the point. Um, I, I don't know if you can make it out from that picture, but that's one of the two bridgeheads where the, the suspension bridge is suspended from. And the earthquake has literally um, um, thrown that head apart so that the foundation blocks, the anchor blocks for the bridge, they have moved and disintegrated. And the cables are actually slipping. And so that bridge needs repairing. I've crossed it twice. And um, meanwhile, we have, we have piled several tons of loose rock on top of that anchor, but it needs, it needs proper repairing. That's another part of the project um, to repair that bridge. As a school, I, I think I mentioned last week, I am so thankful that the earthquake was not on a school day. Had it been on a school day, there would be 32,000 classrooms have collapsed all over Nepal. And, and so um, I'm very thankful it was not on a school day. In fact, this lady here, her name is Benita. Benita is 25 years old, and she has five children. Um, and three of her five children do go to this school, which is the same school as I showed you before in the, in the picture before from the backside. Uh, and she was just looking at that school and sharing with us, like many other people did. Everyone was sharing their story. She shared with us the story where exactly she had been, what exactly she had been doing, where every one of her children had been when the earthquake struck. People have a need to share those stories. And she was just looking at that school and kind of said, well, yes, had the earthquake been 24 hours earlier, I would now have two children and not five. Um, so that's inside one of the classrooms. Rebuilding that school is going to be one of the key components to our project. Um, there's a powerhouse, a, mic, a, 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 hydro, a hydropower plant in the village. In Nepal, uh, many people do not have access to the main grid like we do. For us, the power really comes out of the wall outlets, not so much in Nepal. Many villages have their own little power plant, hydropower plants, um, with sufficient energy, essentially, just for light. Yangri has one of those. Um, in fact, they, they uh, completed that project last year, only about 10 months ago. It supplies power not just to Yangri, but to 17 or 19 villages, I forget, um, around Yangri. And it's just enough power for light. But about a thousand people have light in their houses thanks to that powerhouse. Well, that powerhouse is destroyed. Um, again, you can see the force of the earthquake. Heavy, the, the roof is thrown several meters to the side. Um, the clever geologists, they tell us that the Kathmandu Valley has um, gained a meter in elevation and has shifted six meters, that will be 18 feet to the south through the earthquake. So it's just a, it has been major. And you see some of, of that in the way houses have collapsed. 
has the machinery and the power has. The machinery is okay. Everything else is pretty much destroyed. Here's a funny, a funny thought. Um, when Karina and I first went to Nepal 20 years ago, in fact, July 2000, uh, 1995, so exactly 20 years ago, um, I went there in my capacity as an engineer. And my work was build powerhouses just like that. That's my first experience in Nepal. And we had moved on. I thought I was done with that. Well, apparently I'm not quite done. Um, so these powerhouses run off the river. There's no dam on the river. It's just run off the river. So you channel essentially the water along the hillside so to gain some elevation for the water. And then uh, there's a little turbine and a small generator to generate the electric power. And then it's distributed um, to, to the villages. Every single component of that powerhouse will need to be fixed. The, the water inlet, the channeling, the, the small reservoir, um, the penstock pipe, uh, the powerhouse itself, and, and lots of uh, the, the power cables, uh, the wires will, will all need to be repaired. That's going to be a very demanding project and, and taking us probably all the way to the end of the year uh, to do so. In this picture, you see one of the temporary makeshift shelters that people have started to build. About, they started with that maybe about two weeks after the earthquake in Yangri. Um, the, the man and the woman in the picture here, they are, they're sort of the, the, the village elders. Um, very good people. Um, his name is Gopal. Her name I don't know. <laughs> um, and they're, they're not Christians, not at all. They're, they're Tibetan Buddhists. But they have that attitude of reaching out to the least of, of his brothers. And, and I, I'll, be, I'll be excited to see how Christian thought is going to take root in this village. I'm, I'm very, very hopeful. Um, Gopal and his wife play an immensely important role in terms of leading the village in, in the effort, in their struggle to, to just keep things together, not even rebuilding yet, just keep things together. Um, for a whole week, they had to dig out uh, the people who had perished in their homes and the, and, and the animals and whatnot. And after that, they started building temporary shelters. Uh, Gopal um, is, is our main person in the village. Uh, we formed a little committee, by the way, for our project, um, and Gopal is heading that up. Then there was a moment in this exploration trip, a moment of heart-to-heart -heart connection between Sonam and I. Just amazing. We were just leaving Yangri. We told them that we would be back within days with some relief stuff. Um, they, they urgently needed food and blankets and tarps and whatnot. So we said we would be going back to Kathmandu. We were still in the process of formulating that, that project, how we would comprehensively help this village to get back on their feet. We had decided to adopt the village. And we were just walking up the hill when I, I looked down to that little flat piece of land there, a few acres, and I thought, wow, wouldn't it be fantastic if in Yangri, which is, even though it's remote, it's, it's sort of centrally located in that region, wouldn't it be fantastic if there wasn't just a, a, a crappy 
government school. Government schools are crappy in Nepal, eh? The level of education is so bad. Wouldn't it be great if we could build a good school here, all the way from kindergarten to, to school leaving certificate, uh, and help the entire region make Yangri into this place from which blessing flows out to the whole region? And wouldn't that be a fantastic place over there, with a flat piece of, of land for this, for this thing, uh, for, for the Yangri Educational Center? Um, just as I was thinking that, Sonam, here in the picture, turns around and tells me, Daniel, you know, uh, when I walked through this place here as a teenager before I had to leave the region, I sometimes thought one day I'd like to build a school over there on that place. I couldn't believe it. I absolutely couldn't believe it. So, um, that's going to be one of the key components for this project. Um, I told you to begin with, we're not a relief organization. We're really into, into education and helping kids uh, holistically to find life and life to the full. And sure, we're going to do some relief stuff because, well, there has been an earthquake. But long term, we need to, we need to return to who we are. That's our identity, to help kids. Uh, to protect, nurture, and educate the kids in the Himalayas. And I think that's going to be the anchor of that whole project long-term in, in the community of Yangri. And again, I, I'm very, very hopeful to see new components of life, even, even eternal components of life, enter the village of Yangri. Um, I told you that some of, of, of these decisions I had to make alone. I had to make the decisions how we put together the project, even regardless of the cost that, that was going to be involved. And I'm floored. I'm floored how people here in Canada and over in Switzerland have chipped in in ways I could not have imagined. Now, that's a little stack of money that Sonam and I have in our hands there. It's not dollars, it's rupees. And rupees are a little bit like monopoly money, okay? You have stacks and stacks, and they don't buy much. But, but in fact, this stack here, this stack here uh, bought us a pickup truck because we needed a truck. Um, in Nepal, you cannot really buy secondhand vehicles. So for the first time in my life, I bought a new vehicle. Karina and I never had a new vehicle. I don't have a need for a new vehicle either. I'm perfectly happy with second-hand vehicles. But here we bought a new uh, vehicle. It's an Indian-made pickup truck. And we hope and pray that for the project, this vehicle will be one of the cornerstones to make it successful. Here, a picture of the drinking water system that's now operational. So that picture was taken this week uh, in Yangri, water back in Yangri, and I think that's a very good thing because the temporary village here, part of the temporary village in the picture, they so badly need some um, hygiene come back into their lives. Um, challenges abound. I got two pictures mixed up here, so, so why don't I go back to the hygiene and then come back to that picture? Um, so what you have essentially is small shelters uh, made from um, some timber that they've, that they've pulled from the destroyed houses, some corrugated iron roofs, some plastic tarps. 
and build small little shelters. And that's going to be their homes for the next few months. They have to get through the monsoon in those until we can start building. Um, so you get a small shelter. You got the animals, the war buffaloes, the goats, the chicken, the children, and the parents, and the in-laws, and the grandparents, and the grandchildren, all in one little um, tight space, um, either finding shelter from uh, the torrential rains, which are starting today, actually. Monsoon has just, monsoon season has started today with, with that massive rain buildup that happens every year. And in the monsoon, you have either drenching rain, torrential rain, or you have a scorching sun. Um, this place in Nepal receives over the three months, three and a half months of monsoon, re receives twice the amount of rain that North Vancouver receives in a year. So that gives you an idea. This is just like you would have a bucket being um, um, poured over you. And no surprise that without washrooms, without drinking water, sickness has already become quite a problem. Um, and I'm glad that drinking water at least has been restored. We'll be working on toilets and so on over the next few weeks. Challenges abound. One challenge is that the earthquake has loosened up uh, the mountains and hills and fields and the earth. There's cracks everywhere. I took this shot. I've, I've been not very um, diligent in taking pictures for several reasons. One was there's no electric power out there and I didn't have a, a solar charger with me for for my phone to recharge. So I, I just would switch it on, take a picture, switch it off, and that always takes a bit of time. Um, but here, I just had my phone on during an aftershock. Um, and what happened is, you can see that in the background, that only, what's that, 100 feet or so behind the village, massive rockfall comes down the mountain. So that's one of the big, big worries. What's going to happen in the monsoon with the big rains and still aftershocks going on, how much landslide and so on. Um, so that's, that's some of the challenges that do abound. Um, other challenge is the lack of electric power, which we cannot restore in short time. It means in order to get timber for rebuilding the school, some of the infrastructure. We start with rebuilding infrastructure, not with rebuilding homes, because people do have shelters. We need timber. And the production of timber is just the very old-fashioned two-man saw uh, in the jungle, producing board after board by sewing them by hand. Uh, one of the components of our plan, actually, will be to bring in uh, a bit of, of a, a small mill, so to speak, a wood, a wood mill a wood mill uh, to produce better timber, but that's going to, to be uh, a few months down the road. Until then, uh, it's all by hand. I'll end with this picture. Um, I have no idea. Probably I'm, yes, I've used way too much time, but that's, for today, that's okay. I'm going to head back to Nepal in just one and a half weeks' time. Um, Karina and I had hoped that uh, as of this year, I would be away a bit less. We had worked hard towards that goal, actually, with, with all our other projects. That's obviously not going to happen uh, with this big new project that we have taken on uh, as our response to the earthquake. Uh, as a family, we appreciate your prayer for that, actually. 
Um, this summer is going to be a bit crazy. Karina and Steffi heading to Ladakh, me heading back to Nepal, heading back to that village. Um, in this new way, I continue my calling of loving these kids and thereby loving God. Um, Andy is heading to Keats for four weeks, and sometime after the summer we get together again. Um, but in all of this, yes, we appreciate your prayer. We're thankful that we actually do have that calling, uh, despite despite all what what it means. And I I just want to end with this picture because there's a degree of happiness here among these kids, and I trust that through this project, through your prayers, through the grace of God, through all that's happening, um, life can return to these devastated places. For me, for us as an organization, it's just angry. I, in that sense, don't care about the rest of Nepal. I can't. We have to focus on this one place and we'll give it our very best shot to rebuild this place. The infrastructure, the bridge, the powerhouse, drinking water's done. Um, to rebuild the school, and a bit later to build that better school. We've, we have to start with the government school, then build a better school later on, help people rebuild their houses, build their houses better with some earthquake-resistant designs, um, and, and help them with, with, with a financial loan to, to rebuild their houses, particularly for the roof. Everything else is there. The material is there. It's just in, a, in an untidy heap, but it's there. Um, help people get their lives back on track, put in that sawmill, uh, put in maybe other, other ideas are around, like make this a little bit of a trekking area, bring in some local income. And in all of it, we trust that through this work, we can um, show people God's love and his care for them in, in all of this and the fact that while we try to work out that calling of loving them, he loves them way, way more. So that's the hope that people will essentially, that's why we call it the Yangri Hope Project, that's the hope that people will understand uh, that there is a Redeemer and that he loves them lots and lots and is going to bring them through it and that he will bring good out of even this disaster. Thank you so much.